Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Well, on The Naked Scientists this week, what a new telescope is revealing about the way new stars form far out in space. We'll find out how. Also, how scientists have sequenced the DNA of Neanderthal man, one of our closest relatives. And why washing your hands, bizarrely, can alter the way that your brain makes decisions. And we'll find out why in a minute. Hello, I'm Chris Smith, and also with me this week are Dave Ansell. Hello, Dave. Hello. And also Katani. Hi, Kat. Hello. Also this week, it's our science question and answer extravaganza. We'll be taking on all your science questions, including how do chameleons change colour so quickly? Does alcohol really kill your brain cells off? And why are crocodiles still around if the dinosaurs have died off? If you want to send us a question, those details will be coming up shortly. Dave. Thanks, Kat. And if you're feeling experimental, I've got a fantastic kitchen science experiment for you to try. I'll show you how to make your very own hovercraft. If you want to have a go, you need a CD, a balloon, some card, a pen lid and some sellotape. And Dave will tell you what you can do with all those things later in the, in the show. Uh, meanwhile, if you'd like to get in touch with us, our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com or if you'd like to Twitter at us, it's at Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Dave Ansell and with Kat Arney. Dave, what have you got for us first this week? This week, the recently launched Herschel Space Telescope has re- revealed a new way in which massive stars might form. Stars are, of course, a major building block of the universe, and our star, the Sun, powers almost all the life on Earth. So understanding the workings of stars and the Sun is very important. One big problem is, according to present theories, stars shouldn't get bigger than about eight times the mass of the Sun. This is because the light they produce as they're forming should blow away the surrounding material before it can accumulate on the star. So how big do they get? They seem to get up to 120 times the mass of the Sun. So Gosh. <laughs> they're quite rare at that size, but they do exist. So there's obviously something wrong with the theory. Um, uh, but investigating and finding out why is really difficult because young stars are surrounded by clouds of opaque dust and gas and they obscure our ability to see what's going on. However, in May 2009, the European Space Telescope Herschel was launched. It's the largest space telescope ever deployed and it's equipped with a 3.5-metre mirror. It's steady up, and it's set up to study the infrared region of the spectrum. This means it can see straight through the dust that's hampered early attempts to look at the births of these new stars. So when things like Hubble were originally trying to probe these kind of reaches of the universe, the problem was there was all this dust and gas in the way because it was looking at visible light, but infrared can see straight through that dust. Yes, basically the longer the wavelength, the better it goes through dust. Um, And so they've managed to look into these regions. In fact, it was one of the big reasons why Herschel was launched in the first place. Um, Now, Herschel spotted a bubble of hot gas, which is expanding supersonically through a cloud of other gas and dust, producing a high-density shockwave at the surface where the two meet. And intriguingly, on the surface, a star is beginning to form. It's already got the mass of between 8 and 10 times that of the sun, and it's still growing. There's still about 2,000 solar masses around it, which could grow up, and it's only going to get 
bigger. So it's quite possible this shock wave could be compressing everything and kind of getting over this uh, means it forms a lot quicker and so it can get a lot bigger before it blows away the surrounding material. Intriguing to think that, that finally we've, we've got some answers into how this could happen. Yeah, and Herschel is, I mean, it's a brand new um, thing looking at the universe in a different wavelength and in much greater detail at this wavelength than we ever have done before. So goodness knows what we'll find. Hopefully it should be interesting. Space science is always interesting. Thank you, Dave. Kat, what have you got for us? Yes, well, you might remember a couple of weeks ago on the show, we discussed the science of archaeogenetics. That's unravelling the mysteries of the past that are in our genes. And this week, there's been a really important step forward in that field with the sequencing of the Neanderthal genome, published in the journal Science. And the new research helps to answer some puzzles, such as, did humans and Neanderthals ever mate? And how many genes might we share? Presumably, given that these guys haven't been around for 25,000 years or so, samples of Neanderthal DNA are pretty rare. Yes, and what they did is they used samples of bones from three female Neanderthals who lived uh, in the area of Croatia more than 38,000 years ago. And then they used the latest DNA sequencing, te sequencing technology to sequence the DNA and build up a composite genome. So they've got around about 1.3 times coverage of the whole genome. Well, about a third of that is quite murky still. But then came the fun stuff, comparing the genome they've got from these Neanderthal women to the genomes of humans living in different parts of the world today. And what do they find? Um, well, in fact, they did find that modern Europeans and Asians share about between 1% and 4% of our DNA. Um, but interestingly, Africans don't. Now, this tells us that any interbreeding between us and Neanderthals must have happened after modern humans migrated out of Africa, but before they really radiated across Asia and Europe. So this pins it down to about 30,000 to 45,000 years ago, maybe even as early as 80,000 years ago in the Middle East. But in fact, many people in Europe and Asia may have a small but significant Neanderthal component in their genes, including uh, the study's author, Svante Parbo, as well. That's really neat that it fits with our understanding of human migrations in those early days. Um, what else is it telling us about Neanderthals, though? Well, they've been doing a lot of comparison, comparing the Neanderthal genes with those that are in our, ourselves, present-day humans, to try and find the genes that make us modern. We're about 99.84% identical to Neanderthals, genetically speaking, but there are crucial differences. Now, at the moment, the significance of these differences isn't really clear, but they found them in genes involved in metabolism, skin, bones and brain development. But, of course, we can't tell how those actually relate yet to, to physically, the physical properties they might affect. Now, also, the research allows us to speculate a bit as to how Neanderthals and humans might have interacted together. Now, the researchers from these results, they think that just a few Neanderthals infiltrated groups of humans and started breeding rather than a sort of a mass mixing and breeding of the two species. So maybe there was some kind of cultural difference that it wasn't really culturally acceptable for Neanderthals to, to mate with humans. Now, of course, there's a lot more analysis to do, but it's a really fascinating look into our genetic past and does show that many of us may have a little bit more Neanderthal in us than we might have thought. I still think it's amazing that they actually managed to get DNA in sufficient quantities and sufficient quality to do that kind of sequencing. It's absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Kat. Now, taking a historical look at a slightly different thing, the most famous person in history probably to have washed their hands of something was, of course, Pontius Pilate. We know who he was. He was the guy who was at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, he washed his hands for moral reasons, and we often use that very phrase, I'm going to wash my hands of this. But there's a wonderful paper in the journal Science this week which suggests that actually physically washing your hands 
could affect the way that you make decisions. This is two researchers from the University of Michigan. It's Spike Lee and Norbert Schwartz. And what they did was to recruit 40 undergraduate students, ostensibly to take part in what they dubbed to be a consumer survey. And what they found when they were doing their study was that they asked the students to look at an array of 30 different CDs just musical CDs, and select 10 that they thought were the best and then arrange them in order of their favourite to their least favourite. The next thing they did was to then choose the fifth and sixth CD that the students had selected. Now, the reason they went for the fifth and sixth is that when you ask people to make a list of something, the one at the top of the list, number one, or the one at the bottom of the list, number ten, they're going to have the strongest feelings about. So if you ask people to discriminate between those, they've usually got a good reason for putting them first and last. So if you go for the middle of the list, there's less to discriminate the two things. So they said to the students, which of these two CDs would you like to have as a gift for taking part in the survey? And the students were asked to pick one of the two, their fifth one or their sixth one. They said, OK, let's put that to one side for a minute. Thank you very much. Now, let's carry on with our consumer survey. Have a look at this soap. And they gave them a bottle of soap. Now, on the one hand, they said to them, could you just look at this bottle of soap? And half the students were just asked to look at the bottle. The other half of the students were asked physically to wash their hands as well. After they'd done that, they went back to the CDs and they asked them again to rank the CDs, the 10 CDs, and then choose between the fifth and the sixth CD. Now, what was amazing is that the people who didn't wash their hands stuck to their guns and vigorously defended their original choice in CD. I like that one, and they invented all these reasons why the one they'd originally chosen was much better than the one that they'd rejected. But the people who had washed their hands showed no such bias and they were much more open-minded looking at the decision for a second time. The researchers then repeated the study with jam this time, asking people which of two flavours of jam they would prefer and got exactly the same result. Now, we don't know exactly why washing your hands should affect this this decision-making process, but what it does appear to do is not just wash away any moral objections you may have to something, but also to wash away the traces of, of past decisions that you've made, enabling you to take a fresh look at things. So if you have a difficult decision to make, try washing your hands and then see how you get on. Dave? It's fascinating. Now I'm going to have a look at something which has fascinated lots of people from surveillance agencies to possibly the more dubious parts of society. It's being able to see through opaque objects and take photos through them. Now, if the object absorbs all the light hitting it, then obviously it's impossible for um, any light to get through, so you can't take any photos. But if an object's translucent and scatters the light in lots of random directions, mixing up the image so much that it's impossible for eyes to decode it, um, then in theory, none of the information about that image is lost, even though we can't see see an image at all. Um, now, Sebastian Popoff and his colleagues at the Langevin Institute in Paris have worked out a way of getting this information back. They've managed to see through a slide covered with zinc oxide particles, which to your eyes looks just completely white. They've done it by first shining a series of carefully calibrated laser pulses through the slide and working out what patterns he's produced on the camera sensor. And then from these, they can work out what effect is happening on the light as it goes through it. Then they can kind of reverse that effect, and then if they put an object in between, you can then reverse all that the effect of the slide and you can get back the image of the object which is behind this slide. Now this isn't going to let us see through an arbitrary wall anytime soon but in the short term it might be useful for seeing things through an opaque uh, microscope setup so if you've got lots of sand and sand particles and you want to see an object in the middle of the sand you might be able to do something cunning like that and it's also been suggested that um, the same technique could make a white wall behave exactly like a mirror because it's doing exactly the same thing just reflecting instead of letting light go straight through it so you might be able to use a white wall as a mirror sometime in the future. 
So a white mirror, possibly, which uh, might spare me the indignity of looking in my bathroom mirror in the morning. Who knows? Maybe miracles are possible. Kat, what have you got for us next? It's a story about breast cancer. Now, breast cancer survival is a real success story for science. Around 80% of women now survive breast cancer for at least five years, compared with just half of women with the disease back in the 70s. But most of the success is in cancers that are fuelled by female hormones, and these can be treated with hormone-blocking drugs or um, those that have the HER2 receptor on them. It's a molecule uh, that can be blocked with the drug Herceptin. But there are also so-called triple-negative cancers, which don't have any of these hormone receptors or the HER2 receptor and they're much harder to treat and survival is poorer. But now new research published in the journal Nature today from an international team led by Cancer Research UK's Madalena Tarsunas in Oxford, Jos Junkers in the Netherlands and Shridhar Ganesan in the US has discovered why these cancers may be resistant to chemotherapy and radiotherapy as well as an intriguing link to the breast cancer gene BRCA1. Yes, BRCA1. So isn't a faulty form of that found in a number of hereditary forms of breast cancer where the women who carry that gene in a family tend to have an above-average risk of breast cancer? Yes, and here's the connection, because around 9 out of 10 triple-negative breast cancers are in women with faulty BRCA1, so clearly there is a link. And sometimes these BRCA1-deficient cancers respond to radiotherapy and chemotherapy, particularly with platinum-based drugs such as carboplatin and cisplatin. But often the tumours develop resistance to treatment and start growing again. And now Tarsunas and her colleagues wanted to find out why. So what did they do? Well, the research started by looking at cells grown in the lab that lacked BRCA1, BRCA1. Now, contrary to what you might think, these cells actually don't grow well at all. In fact, in in cancers in people, it's the combination of faulty BRCA1 with other faulty genes that makes cancer cells grow. And uh, then the researchers used a clever trick to randomly knock out genes in these BRCA-deficient cells to hunt for other genes that, in combination, made the cells grow out of control. Oh, that's interesting. So what did they find? Well, they found several candidates, but the most interesting one was a gene called 53BP1. Now, it's normally involved in helping cells to repair damaged DNA. And then the scientists went on to discover that while cells lacking just BRCA1 can be killed with cisplatin or radiotherapy, cells lacking both BRCA1 and 53BP1 were resistant to treatment. So this explains how these cancers may develop resistance to therapy. Now, you mentioned these triple negative cancers earlier, the the ones that we spoke about to start with, and said they were linked to BRCA1. So what's the connection? Well, the scientists went on to look at more than 1,800 samples from breast cancer patients, and they looked at the levels of 53BP1 and other characteristics of these samples, and they discovered that most triple negative cancers also had low levels of 53BP1, suggesting that the gene was faulty in those cancers. And 53BP1 was also faulty in most of the cancers from women with BRCA1 faults. But what does this mean for patients then? Well, for a start, this research tells us that the BRCA-deficient triple-negative breast cancers with low levels of 53BP1 are likely to be resistant to radiotherapy and chemotherapy. So maybe in the future this could be developed into a test to help doctors decide what sort of treatment to give to women with these types of tumours. And in fact, if we can discover exactly how the loss of this protein, 53BP1, causes cancer cells to become resistant to treatment, it might show us new targets for drugs to to improve the effectiveness of chemotherapy and radiotherapy and help to overcome this resistance. And, of course, that would help to save many, many lives in the future. 
Indeed. Kat, thank you very much. Now, also in the news this week, researchers in Toronto and in Cambridge have made a major breakthrough in understanding how DNA works. More specifically, how the same gene can produce different gene products in different types of cells. To tell us more is Yosef Barash from the University of Toronto. And tell us first, if you could, Yosef, what's the, the problem you've actually been grappling with? What are you trying to solve here? Basically, the problem that we were uh, handling, if I put it in one sentence, was to, be to figure out how alternative splicing works. Of course, that wouldn't mean much if I don't explain what is alternative splicing and why is it important. So I'll start off by starting with what people do know, and people do know usually about the genes and that they're coded in DNA molecules. And many people know that scientists about a decade ago mapped the human genome and that they found there are about 20,000 genes altogether in the human genome. What people usually don't know is that the same gene can actually code for different genetic messages in the form of messenger RNA molecules. And these different messages can operate quite differently in the cell. So in other words, in different tissues, genes which have the same genetic code can have a different effect by effectively chopping the gene up in a slightly different way so it turns into a different recipe. Exactly. So instead of a one-gene-one-product kind of model, we have a one-gene-many-product model. And what we were trying to figure out is how this works. So how, what is the code within the genetic code that tells, us, tells the cell how, when, under certain, uh, what conditions, etc., to perform these splicing variants. So in a nerve cell, the same gene may do something completely different to a liver cell, but the big question is, how does it know it's a nerve cell or a liver cell, and therefore to behave differently? Exactly. And how did you approach that? Basically what we did is interdisciplinary research. We started off by doing experiments, and that was done at the Blanco lab, and we measured around 4,000 pieces called axons of genetic messages across 27 different mouse tissues. Then we analyzed the data to figure out how these changes occur, so the different inclusion or exclusion of these bits uh, and pieces of the messages in the different tissues, how does it change? And then we went to the genome to figure out what is, the, what is this code, what are the different components that determine the, these changes, so we can actually look at the genetic code and figure out, if we just look at it, what would be the changes in, say, brain versus liver, as you suggested. So, in other words, by looking at many thousands of genetic sequences and doing this lots and lots of times in lots of different tissues, you can begin to tie together how a different gene gets cut up in a different way in a specific tissue, and then you can begin to work out what sequences are hidden in the genetic material that's making that happen. Exactly, and that's the computer science part of the uh, research, the machine learning part of uh, the research, exactly. So presumably this is really important because what it will enable us to now do is when we want to do, say, gene therapy on something, up until now we've taken a very simple approach and said this gene turns into this product in a cell regardless of what cell type it is, so we just put the gene in and we'll get the product out. It hasn't always been as successful as we would have liked. Now we're in a position to apply the discovery you've made, which means that we can begin to ask, well, will this gene behave the way we think it will? So presumably your model will enable us to make predictions so that we can work out how genes will behave in different tissues. Exactly. So once you have that program, that model, then you can look at areas that you've never seen before, you've never measured in the original experiments, and use the program to tell you what's going to happen. You can also relate certain, same mutations 
to certain diseases, etc. And that's where a lot of the potential lies. I was going to ask, presumably, we know that cancer killing one person in three is a genetic disease. Does this mean then that different cancers are going to behave differently in different tissues or that the genetics of cancer is going to differ between tissues because of what you found? So we're definitely going, this is one of these promising directions that we're going to do follow-up research, dedicated research. So instead of just looking at, say, different tissues, we're going to look at different diseases and disease bases, normal or subtypes of diseases, as you mentioned, different types of cancer, etc., and, and concentrate on this. And in the study already published, we, we concentrated on certain uh, neurological diseases and show the relation between the code that we found and mutations in certain areas. So there's a lot of potential there, definitely. And just to finish off, you've done this in mice. Is what goes for a mouse what goes for a person? Do the same messages hidden in the genetic sequence that make the cells chop genes up this way in mice also work in men? Right, so that's an excellent question. So first off, in the original paper, what we did when we analysed diseases, we analysed areas which we know are conserved, and we were able to relate then the changes that we found using uh, mouse genome to diseases in human. But, of course, the next step is, of course, to analyze more data coming from human. That's what actually we're doing now. So this is sort of work in progress. All right, well, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. That's Joseph Barish from the University of Toronto. And you can read more about his work. He's published that amazing discovery in the journal Nature this week. We'll put references to that and, in fact, all of the news stories you've heard today on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash news. Laying the facts bare. I say... The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith, with Dave Ansell and with Kat Arney. We are answering your science questions this week and also on the way Dave has an experiment for you to try at home where you can build your own hovercraft with stuff you've just got lying around. Sounds fantastic. If you want to tweet at us through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists or you can send us an email, chris at thenakedscientist.com. On the way, we'll be talking to Jordan, who wants to ask us about chameleons. And also Jennifer Jackson has got a very important question for anyone who's celebrating or celebrating at some point. How does alcohol actually affect your brain cells? Does a hangover really translate into the death of a million neurons? We'll find out. But before then, I've got a question here from Sahith for you, Dave, who says, can we use chlorophyll as a source of energy? What he's getting at is, can chlorophyll actually be introduced into our bodies so that we could avoid hunger, for example? So when you get peckish, rather than have to eat something, you just go and bask in the sunshine, assuming you don't live in Britain, where there is no sun. Well, I thought I'd start off with a just sort of a physics approach to this and see whether it's at all practical. Now, you've got about half a square metre of skin, which you'd point at the sun at any time. You've got a metre in total, but you can only point, point half of that at the sun. Probably the sun most, if you're on the equator and it's a really sunny day, you get about a kilowatt of sunlight at midday, probably about half that on average during the day, and it's only daytime half the time, so on average about 250 watts. The maximum theoretical efficiency of photosynthesis is about 20%, but that's only on about half the light which can absorb it. So about 10 percent is the efficiency and if you multiply those all up you get about 12 watts of power continuously throughout the day 
That sounds like it might be quite useful. However, the problem is if you're just sitting around That's not, not doing much, anything, Dave. it's not very much. <laughs> it might, might be useful, but without some kind of context, it doesn't really mean a lot. Just sitting around, not doing anything, just sitting in a chair, vegging, you use the about 60 of a human watts is. of yeah, power. Exactly. So it might help a little bit, if you, but not. it wouldn't, certainly wouldn't solve all your problems. And I'm guessing that actually the physiological issues would be quite serious. I guess, Chris, you're better to talk about that sort of thing. <laughs> well, the thing is, some animals have done this to, to great effect, though, haven't they? There's the Sacoglossan sea slug, which famously in recent years has been discovered to actually have chloroplasts, chlorophyll-containing bodies, in its skin. This slug eats algae, marine microorganisms, including seaweeds and things, and it has got this special system where it has tubes connecting the lining of its gut with its skin, and when it eats the algae, it gets the chloroplasts with the chlorophyll in from the algae and puts them under its skin. And amazingly, the genome of the sea slug contains a number of additional genes from seaweed that can keep those chloroplasts alive. So this sea slug really does augment its metabolism using sunlight. Presumably, I mean, your worry would be if you start putting chlorophyll into the body, would the immune system have something to say about it? The likelihood is if you got it in there from birth, so you educated the immune system about it, I don't think there'd be a problem. And let's face it, if you're in a position to start turning people green, uh, the, the likelihood is that you probably would have surmounted the immune problem too, I would guess. And I guess you'd need some quite serious genetic engineering to be able to add those, pro those genes into your body to be able to support the chloroplasts as well. There's a Twitter from Hugh McDonald on a plant-related theme who says, why do some plants have purple leaves? Do they not need green leaves for photosynthesis? But no, the answer is they don't. I'd, I'd had a go at this with chromatography on chlorophyll and um, kitchen science a few weeks ago. Although most of the pigment in the plant is actually purple, if you actually do the chromatography, you do see there is still some green pigment in there. So there is some green chlorophyll in there in normal plants. Um, in things like algae, seaweeds, they have a different colour of chlorophyll, completely different chlorophyll, which can absorb, in fact, it absorbs blue light better than red light, which because blue light goes through water a lot better than red, red light. Red light doesn't. That's why blood looks black underwater, because all the red light has been soaked up by the upper layers of water and, the, yeah. and there's nothing to reflect off the red blood, so it looks black. So red seaweeds have just got a different form of chlorophyll and I think but, um, purple plants just have some green chlorophyll in there as well. We're talking of interesting forms of life. Bob Archibald is wondering, Cat, why haven't scientists been able to create life in the lab? Perhaps a meteorite crashed into the Earth and combined with terrestrial material and gases to kickstart simple forms of life. But given we know how much about microbes and their DNA and their chemical content, why haven't scientists been able to create a simple living organism from scratch? Uh, in fact, they have. Um, Craig Venter, the um, US genome sequencing bod, um, a couple of years ago published in the journal Science, they did actually completely build a very simple bacterium, Mycoplasma genitalium, from scratch. They made all the DNA and they kind of put it all together. Now, it was incredibly hard to do. The fact that we know the genome sequence of a lot of organisms, and particularly simple organisms like viruses and bacteria, uh, is a far cry from actually making the DNA in exactly the right order, building that DNA strand and then putting the whole thing together. But I think Craig's Venter's uh, kind of grand plan is to make artificial life. Uh, so this is certainly a start, and it has kind of been done. So, um, yes, it has been done, but it's very difficult. But the cynics would say he used a cell that had already been made and then put the genetic material in, and it's that key thing, it's that membrane being made, it's the biochemistry that kick-starts the DNA you put in into action, which is the key recipe, the key ingredient in life that we just don't understand at the moment. 
That's true. And some people did say, well, you know, you've just stuck a, an instruction book into this kind of bag of stuff. I think building the rest of it is going to prove more tricky. We, the fact that we know what makes it up doesn't prove that we know how it's been put together. But obviously, the more we understand about how enzymes work, how organisms work, it might be possible. Um, and in terms of sort of creating life from scratch, there there were the famous experiments, the, the mill. I keep wanting to say Armstrong and Miller, but they're comedians. Um, the experiments that were, that were done Miller, when they... Stanley yes, in yes. the 1950s and 70s. His experiments, yeah. mixing together a whole bunch of chemicals, zapping it with electricity and, and making things like uh, simple amino acids. So those kind of experiments are being done as well. So it may be that we will see completely artificial life um, appearing in the lab. Next week, I think, on the show, we're actually discussing synthetic biology, making stuff, making life from scratch. So uh, stay tuned next week and see if more comes out. Indeed. Thank you, Kat. And that's absolutely right. Next week, we'll be talking about how researchers are seeking to make some forms of simple artificial life in the laboratory. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Dave Ansell and with Kat Arney, and we're answering your science questions. You can email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com or tweet at Naked Scientists. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. Jordan is with us. Hello, Jordan. Hello. Tell us, what can we do for you? Uh, well, yeah, I had a student ask me in one of my science classes, he wanted to know how and why chameleons change color. And I had always kind of known that they, it's a good example of camouflage, but I also thought about it for a while, and I know that the chameleon just can't change color to whatever it wants consciously. Uh, and so I did some research and found out that maybe light, intensity, temperature, or mood could do it. Uh, so I was just wondering if you guys could elaborate on that and maybe answer that question for me. It's sort of nature's example of Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat, isn't it, the chameleon? It's just phenomenal. There is this myth going around that chameleons change colour to blend in with their surroundings, but this is actually not true. Most of the reason chameleons change colour is as a signal, a visual signal of mood and aggression, territory and mating behaviour. Now, the way... Te- that chameleons actually do this is really molecular, well, they're molecular masterminds, really. If you look at the skin of a chameleon, you find that what they have are several layers of specialised cells called chromatophores, and these are cells that can change colour. Now, out on the outer surface of a chameleon, the skin is transparent, and just below that is the first layer of these cells, and they contain various pigments. These are xanthophores, these particular specialised pigments, and they are a yellow colour. Beneath that are pigment cells which are called erythrophores, which have a red colour in them. Beneath that are another layer of cells which are called iridophores, and they have blue colour pigment called guanine, which is actually also used in making DNA. And, and underneath that is another layer of cells called melanophores, which have a brown pigment, melanin, in them. Now, How does the chameleon change colour? Well, those chromatophores are wired up to the nervous system. They are also sensitive to chemicals that are washing round in the bloodstream of the chameleon. And what happens is that the colours are locked away in tiny vesicles, little sacs inside the cells that keep them in one place. So the cells don't look coloured. But when a signal comes in from the nervous system or from the bloodstream the granules, the vesicles, can discharge, allowing the colour to spread out across the cell, and this alters the colour of the cell. It's rather like giving the cell a coat of paint. And by varying the relative amount of activity of the different chromatophores in different layers of the skin of different colours, 
This is like mixing different paints together. So if you mix red and yellow, you get orange, for example. And this is how chameleons do this. They mix different contributions of these chromatophores. I suppose it's a bit like on your television screen, when you mix different colours together on the screen to get the colour that the eye ultimately perceives. And so that's how the chameleon changes colour. And it actually does it usually to convey mood. So a calm chameleon is a pale greeny colour. When it gets angry, it might go bright yellow. And when it wants to mate, it basically turns on every possible colour it can... (laughs) which shows that it's in the mood. And this is not unique to chameleons. Other animals also have these chromatophores, and cuttlefish are another very elegant example of of how this works. Um, So it's not so much to do with camouflage, it's more to do with communication. Brilliant question, though. Thank you very much. Now, Dave, I've got this one here, which I like, because uh, I've actually felt this myself. Tara Elliott says, Can you feel lightning striking a house? I was woken up last night by a loud sound of thunder, and I swear I felt the house shake. We live on the third floor of a, a condo complex with a courtyard at the back. Is it possible to feel lightning hitting the house? Well, lightning is a huge, basically a huge spark. You get about 100,000 amps of current flowing down through the air. Um, this gives out about 1,000 trillion watts for about 30 millionths of a second. So that's the total amount of energy released is about 30 megajoules of energy. So that's about the same amount as about the order of a 30 kilogram bomb. Depends what the bomb is made of, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a sort of order of magnitude. But quite a lot of that's going to be a long way up into the sky. So let's say, so basically, um, that energy is about equivalent of about a kilogram of, of um, say, TNT going off near your house. Most of that energy goes into heating up air. The air gets very, very hot when a hot air expands, so that creates a um, shockwave of air pushing outwards and that's what you hear is the thunder if that happens very very close to you then you will actually get a quite a large um, overpressure like a bomb going off and a bo- if a bomb can shake your house then a lightning strike should be able to i did some back of the envelope calculations i think you get 120,000 pieces of toast you could make with the energy in one lightning bolt assuming you could turn all of it into toast obviously so that's really quite a lot isn't it for the time period, certainly, yeah. Kat, um, Therese Campmayer wonders, why do birds fly into windows? Hello, naked scientist. My question is that I have a bird sitting on my decking outside and he keeps flying off of the ledge and straight into my kitchen window and he's doing it over and over again. He's been doing this non-stop for two days now. What is wrong with this bird? Is he crazy? Because it's driving me crazy. Oh, I think he's a little bird-brained. Um, no, birds do fly into windows. At home, my mum has a lot of bird outlines against the windows to stop them flying into them and they fly into them for various reasons. Firstly it's clear glass, they might not see it's there, they might think oh that looks like a nice room, maybe a bit of floral wallpaper bang, straight into the window so if you do have big patio doors it's quite good to put stickers or something on them the other thing is is also that the birds may be uh, seeing their reflection and it is the time of year when birds maybe get a little bit frisky um, and they start fighting with the other, maybe if it's a male bird, start fighting with male birds or trying to mate with ladybirds Surely they should mate with with feathered birds, because ladybirds are a bit small for a bird to mate with, aren't they? Female birds, thank you, Chris. Um, So perhaps the bird is actually seeing its reflection in the glass and uh, flying at it, trying to attack it, and not realising that it's not another bird, it's its reflection. Especially with houses, normally if the room behind it is quite dark, that makes the window look even more reflective and acts more like a mirror. So I suspect that your bird is fighting some imaginary turf war uh, with itself and that's why it keeps flying into your window. So maybe try keeping the lights on in the room so that the room's not so dark or try uh, getting a cat or putting something um, more kind of uh, 
stickers or something on the window perhaps might help. Or a shotgun, of course. Or a shotgun. Oh, no, that would be nasty. Kat, thank you very much. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. It's Chris, Dave and Kat. We're answering all your science questions. If you want to tweet a question at us through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists, or you can just email us at chris at thenakedscientist.com. Thank you, Kat. Uh, Jennifer is on the phone. Hello, Jennifer. Hello. So what are we helping you with, hangovers or something? (laughs) Well, my friend and I were having a discussion about this the other night and we wondered if there's any truth in that common statement that alcohol causes brain cell death and really what the sort of measurable effect is. Her partner also said, oh, I thought spicy food also kills brain cells and we wondered if there's actually any truth in that at all we thought you guys would be the best people to uh, <laughs> to ask well it's very kind of you i can deal with the spicy one straight away because in okay. fact that's a myth and there's evidence that people who eat a lot of spicy food have lower rates of alzheimer's disease than people who don't eat spicy food and this is because turmeric the orange stuff which when you get a bit drunk in the curry house and spill your curry down your shirt which is always white for some reason when this happens that orange staining stuff turmeric has actually got anti-inflammatory and antioxidant qualities it seems to cut down the production in the brain of a chemical called beta amyloid and beta amyloid is the stuff that makes alzheimer's disease happen it builds up and forms tank uh, plaques in the brain that damage nerve cells so if you eat lots of turmeric it seems to reduce the risk of that happening so spicy food good for your brain that's that one done booze booze is more difficult The evidence is, if you were to incubate nerve cells in a solution of alcohol, they would die. So alcohol is a toxin. Thankfully, the body is really well set up to deal with it metabolically. The liver handles alcohol extremely well, and only a tiny proportion of the alcohol we drink actually gets into circulation because the liver sees all of the blood that comes from the digestive tract before it goes anywhere near the rest of your body, and the liver therefore deals with the booze before it goes systemically around your body and and into your brain. But a small amount of alcohol does go into the brain, and when it gets there, the reason it makes us behave the way it does, and we all know what the effects are, at least in moderate doses, is that alcohol increases the activity of one of the brain's inhibitory nerve transmitter chemicals. This is called GABA. And so what it does is it damps down the activity of nerve cells. So unlike certain drugs like ecstasy, which can in fact make nerve cells more active and damage them, alcohol damps down the activity of nerve cells and therefore it makes them less vulnerable to damage. So they might live longer. Well, they may do. So the evidence is small doses of alcohol probably don't harm neurons and the body's pretty well set up to cope with it anyway. And if you look at people who have spent their whole life drinking modest amounts of alcohol, there's evidence that actually their intellect may be preserved better than teetotalers. So that's not saying now prescribe yourself daily alcohol intake to live a long time and have good brain function into old age. That's not what we're saying. But what what we are saying is that epidemiologically, if you look at populations, the evidence is that it doesn't do any harm. There's no evidence for significant harm in those people. If you also look at people who are chronic alcoholics, unless they get a condition called Wernicke-Korsakoff's psychosis, which is where they run out of a vitamin called B1, thiamine, and this is very destructive to nerve cells, they don't actually have huge damage to the nervous system unless they are very, very, very heavy drinkers for a very long time. So therefore the evidence is that alcohol is probably okay in modest doses and most of the injuries that happen and most of the damage to the brain is is people who get drunk and fall over and hit their head (laughs) or get into fights. That's actually the reason why head injuries happen with alcohol and why brain damage probably occurs actually. Goodness. All right. That's so interesting. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
Now it's time to join Mira Senthalingam for a bit of a technology update because this month she has been at the Grand Designs live show. This is a London-based exhibition which is inspired by the television programme of the same name and it celebrates innovation in architecture. And Mira's been along to find out a bit more. This week, the Grand Designs live show has been taking place at the Excel Centre in London. There are over 500 exhibitors and displays showcasing ways to design, improve and power your home. There's a whole host of technology and gadgets on display, so I've come along to see what's on offer. Now, I'm here with the man behind Grand Designs Live, Kevin McLeod. Now, Kevin, what's Grand Designs Live all about? In a sense, I suppose, it's about bringing the television show to life, so it's about giving people an experience at an exhibition which is rich and exciting and educational. What we can do is show people all the stuff that goes into buildings and what makes them tick and work and give them a good time. It's lots of seminars and uh, events for them to take part in. What are the key themes about this year's show in terms of house design? Year on year, we try and steer it more and more in the direction of sustainability. We now now have a full green audit of every single exhibitor and of the whole show. There are ten products here which represent different aspects of construction and design, from furniture through to insulation and carpet, which are little known. And there's some really fun things here as well. There's a great variety, actually. So there are recycled clothes pegs. There's a wonderful wardrobe over there made of cardboard, which actually looks quite sturdy. Yeah, that's Giles Miller, the cardboard king. He makes beautiful cardboard and beautiful cardboard uh, lampshades too. And the EcoForce clothes pegs, yeah. I I put them in because somebody said to me, you know clothes pegs, there's a company that make them out of recycled plastic. I said, yes, well, surely all clothes pegs are made out of recycled plastic. I thought we'd just have to put them in just to make the point, really. And we're standing on this, look, I have to show you, this is amazing stuff. This is cardboard we're standing on. It's the carpet tiles, about 12 inches square. They're brown and black and grey. They look very, I think they look quite glamorous and they're very durable and hard wearing. And I've got one here. Each carpet is just a backing and on it, the strips are, what, 12 inches long and it's just a piece of car tyre. It's just a piece of car tyre that they've then brushed to bring out the pile of the fibres that are inside the tyre. This is a minimally processed product. It's made from tyres and it looks beautiful and glamorous. I love that. The problem is at the moment about 7% of tyres are recycled and we throw away 486,000 tonnes of old tyres every year in this country. We can't put them in landfill anymore. You can't even put the rubber crumb in landfill, so we need to think about what we're going to do with this stuff and we should think about doing that in a way which minimally processes them. I put this in because it just ticks all those boxes. It's an amazing product. With me now is Anthony Goody, who's a technology expert for MediaTek. We're inside the Philips House of the Future. So what exactly will the House of the Future be about? The House of the Future will be adopting some different themes of how we move forward with all our future technology. Our main one is energy conscious living. So it's how we reduce the impact our homes have on the environment in the future, from everything from reducing our water consumption to reducing our energy consumption. Switching to LED lighting, for instance, could actually reduce power consumption in the home by up to 90% when compared to standard light bulbs that they've got in the home. Now, we're inside the house of the future. It's very white, it's very bright, and there's very cool-looking gadgets all over the place. So you've mentioned LED already, which a lot of the gadgets and lighting around here seems to be made of. But what are the other new gadgets that are on show here? One of the key products on show we've got at the House of the Future this year is actually our wireless power technology. And this is essentially the ability to deliver power over a distance. So it's time to cut the cord and to remove our cables from our laptops and our phone chargers. So essentially in the future you'll be able to enter the House of the Future 
your mobile phone will instantly start charging and you'll never have to plug your laptop on again to get it charging. All of your devices, gadgetry, will all be powered wirelessly. So at the moment it requires localised hotspots, doesn't it? That's correct, yeah. We've got localised hotspots that deliver energy power transfer around the distance of 20 centimetres. So you could have a special place on your coffee table in the lounge that charges your laptop or a special place in your kitchen that you could have to power your blender, for say. But in the future, they've actually got trials going on in America at the minute that are delivering power on a distance of up to three metres. So essentially, you can vacuum cordlessly. So I guess lastly, how would you summarise this house then? It's very pretty. It looks very futuristic. Is this going to be your home of the future, do you think? This is definitely my ideal um, living scenario of the future. This is what my home will definitely be like. We've absolutely got everything on display here. Obviously, we're, we're heading it up with wireless power. All of our devices as well are connected, so all of our lighting is controlled by one central remote controlled unit. It's just all about usability and easeability of well of actually living in the future. And, of course, a smell-reducing toilet just to top it off. Staying on the eco theme, I'm now in a, a home, a, a very comfortable home, out on a roof terrace, but surprisingly this house is made out of shipping containers. And with me to tell me a little bit more about this is Britt O'Sullivan, who works with the company making these, which is Eco Modular Living. We've brought with us to Grand Designs a two-bed, one-bath home on two floors, which is made of four shipping containers, two on top of each other. The house is made out of standard shipping containers. It takes 21 days from them looking like ordinary second-hand shipping containers to being uh, turned into a home, which includes carpets, recycled plasterboard walls, a kitchen, a bathroom, with all the doors and fixtures and fittings. What are the main reasons for people to go for this kind of home? What are the environmental benefits of it? It is very environmentally friendly. We're using a recycled product already. You can bolt on as many uh, sustainable credentials as you like. So you can have a living roof, solar panels attached. It's currently uh, signed off as Code 4 of the Sustainability Code. But if it's actually sat within the right environment, it would reach zero carbon. What's the market for these? So who are you trying to attract? Our client base is quite diverse. So if you think both public and private sector, we've got individuals who want to do a self-build. Also, uh, we are very popular at the moment with councils. We're actually presenting and designing for various councils across the UK for affordable housing. I'm very comfortable out here on the terrace and I'm not yet a homeowner. So what's the retail price of these? Uh, this one at the moment is 95000 which gives you two containers on the ground floor, uh, giving you a kitchen, dining and living area. And then on the, on the first floor, it gives you two bedrooms and a bathroom. Just get your land and then we'll be there within 21 days. Absolutely fantastic stuff of the future. I, for one, will be first in the line for the smell-free toilet, living with three boys. Anyway, that was Britt O'Sullivan from Eco Modular Living, and before that you heard Anthony Goody from MediaTek and Kevin McLeod from Grand Designs taking Mira through the latest futuristic and environmentally friendly technology for the home. Thank you, Kat. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris, Kat and Dave, and we're answering your science questions. Now, Kat, I've got a couple here for you that are sort of related, so I'll combine the two together. Erin, who's seven, says, Why does hair change colour with age and eventually go grey? And Anna says... How can hair change colour along its length? My hair's naturally black, it's undyed, and it's long enough for me to observe changes in colour. Some of my hairs are colourless for several inches at the ends, but appear to have regained their black colour closer towards the root. What do you think is going on? 
Well, your hair is coloured because you have cells that kind of pump pigment into the hair as it's growing. And obviously, as you get older, these pigment cells basically get a bit knackered and they stop putting colour into your hair, which is why your hair goes grey. It it doesn't go grey. In fact, it goes colourless. It goes white. But against the background of darker hair, it it may look grey. So that's because the pigment has stopped being pumped into the hair. But also pigment cells don't continually pump pigment into the hair. They, they may sort of take little breaks. They may go in a sort of cyclical way, a cyclical way. And so it's perfectly possible for hairs to be different colours along their lengths. It's probably unusual that you'd have like zebra print hair, um, but it is certainly possible that they might stop producing pigment for a bit and then start producing pigment again. The sort of Cruella de Vil look. <laughs> the cat, cat, thank you very much. Now, this is the bit of the show which uh, I've been looking forward to because I haven't been on a hovercraft for a very long time. Dave, take it away. OK, so here we have a lovely little experiment you can do at home. In fact, it's all based on a very simple principle, and this is actually, I think, is really beautiful. What you need is just a normal bog-standard CD. It doesn't matter if it's dead, if it doesn't work at all, if there's something you really hate on it, that's all good. If you put the CD upside down, so with a shiny face upwards, and then blow into the hole, you get a really quite nice nice effect. So you put it on the tabletop and blow. Oh, the CD is levitating and moving. What's happening is air is being, as you blow down, it goes in through the hole and then it bounces out sideways. It gets trapped under the CD. You get a pressure of air, high pressure of air under the CD than outside. That means that the CD is lifted up off the ground and it floats on a cushion of air, which is a hovercraft. This is really neat, but it's kind of not very good. It doesn't last very long. So what you want to do is try and make this last a bit longer and supply the air using a balloon. So we need some way of attaching the balloon onto that hole. The first thing you want to do is make something to put the balloon over. So you want to make a little tube of cardboard. Oh, I see. So you cut the you cut some cardboard and now you're rolling it up to make... It's, it looks like a sort of cardboard cigarette, really. You, you sort of want it actually wider at the bottom than the top. And we're going to have to limit the amount of air which is coming out of the balloon. So I'm going to use a pen lid to do oh, I that. See. Otherwise it would just blast off and... Yeah. yeah, and it doesn't work at all. It runs out so you introduce a bit of resistance into the tube. So you want the top of the tube to be slightly narrower than, than the widest bit of the pen lid. So you can jam the pen lid into it and the bottom of it wider than the hole. You then want to sellotape that onto the bottom of the CD onto the top of the CD over the hole. OK, so what we've got now is the CD cardboard tube, our sort of cylindrical cardboard tube coming up above the hole, taped down. There's a pen lid sticking out of the top of the cardboard tube, a big biro pen lid. That's, that's to provide the resistance, isn't it? Yeah. And then presumably you're going to put the balloon on the top of that. I'm going to put the balloon on the top of that. I might use one which I made rather less quickly than that one. And I will blow air into it. So, rather... so Dave's got the balloon attached over the cardboard tube and now you're going to blow in from the other side of the cd it's slightly to inflate the balloon anyway go on oh no that's fantastic so let me just explain what happened the the cd was held aloft above the tabletop by the balloon for the time you heard it going down and and it was just literally floating around and you could actually knock it around it's almost like an air hockey table isn't it the effect where you could sort of push the cd and it will move very low friction. Exactly the same idea as their hockey table, but with their hockey table, the air is coming up from the bottom rather than down from the top. If you try it on something like a carpet, it doesn't work at all. Why not? Um, basically because the carpet's far too rough, which means that the air can escape perfectly happily through all the deep bits, whilst the sticky-uppy bits still touch the CD, so you've still got as much friction as you had before. Now, the obvious real-world example here is this is the thing that gets us across the channel and all that kind of thing, down to the Isle of Wight, if you go on the Isle of Wight hovercraft. 
obviously they're not using balloons to inflate the hovercraft, but is it otherwise pretty much the same principle? It's a very similar principle, slightly rather more sophisticated. They use big fans to blow air down under the underneath the hovercraft. They've also got over this rough surface issue slightly by using a skirt around the side, which means it can keep a seal on the water even over waves. Because otherwise, if you were, if you had a, just a flat hovercraft, it would go over waves and all the air would suck, fall out through the troughs in the waves and it wouldn't float at all. So you have a nice skirt, which makes a seal. And yeah, then you can drive across a channel with it. And if you'd like to find out how you can make your very own hovercraft, Dave has put some elegant pictures of his CD hovercraft on the web. It's at nakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science. Any particular musical CD work better? Water music? Good choice? I I wouldn't (laughs) like to comment. Thank you very much, Dave. It is The Naked Scientist. We're answering your science questions. If you'd like to get in touch, email chris at thenakedscientist.com or tweet at Naked Scientist. Bringing the facts to bear... The Naked Scientists. And this is Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Kat Arney taking on your science questions. Kat, we've had a crying week, really, this week. We've got lots and lots of questions about crying. Joe DeLuco, why do we cry? Anthony Byrne, what is the purpose of crying? How has it evolved in humans? John France says, why do we laugh and cry at the same time? Andy Leonard, why do humans cry? And Ems Bamber, can crocodile tears be distinguished biochemically from normal tears? Can you help? Yes. Now, why do we cry? Um, It's obviously, it's a very highly evolved behaviour because we are the only animals that do it. Other animals, although this is possibly disputed by some scientists, don't appear to cry. Um, Now, it's basically, it's thought that you cry in response to stimulus and it's maybe it's to do with, some scientists thought maybe it's to do with with a build-up of stress and hormones, um, a hormone called adrenocorticotropic hormone might actually be released through the tears. So when you're in a stressful or unhappy situation, you actually release this hormone and get it out of your body through your tears. There is evidence for certain hormones found in your tears, things like the hormone prolactin, in other things, things like potassium and manganese. And so tears produced when you're crying for emotional reasons actually have more of these things in than um, tears that just lubricating your eyelids. So perhaps you might be able to tell if someone is just faking it or just got the onions out by measuring these hormones in their tears. Interestingly, another thing about crying, women do cry more than men. It's thought to be to do with certain hormones that are only found in women. A study showed on average that men cry about once a month, uh, women cry about five times a month on average more around your time of the month ladies the other interesting thing about crying is that it may well have evolved as a communication signal um, to say I'm really unhappy and I need a cuddle or I'm really upset, I'm really angry, I'm really stressed because obviously people can see your tears and respond to them so uh, it may well be some kind of, of signal showing that you're vulnerable that you're unhappy that other people can respond to Brilliant answer. Thank you very much, Kat. Uh, Connor is with us. Connor, hello. Hello there. How can we help you? Just wondering, why do we have spots? And some people have acne and others don't. And if there's a possible cure? Okay. This is a very common problem and one which causes lots of people lots of stress. So we should spend some time looking at this. If you look at skin and you look closely, you'll see that on the surface of the skin, there are lots of little tiny pits or holes. And those are pores. These are tiny little glands or the openings of little glands from glandular tissue which is deeper in the skin and that glandular tissue produces various chemicals, mainly oil-based ones including sebum, 
which oozes out from the gland and nourishes the overlying skin and also controls the chemical environment of the overlying skin. It controls, for instance, the growth and proliferation of various microorganisms. The thing is that these glands are very sensitive to androgens, testosterone-like chemicals, in the bloodstream. And when a person goes into puberty, the time when the secondary sexual characteristics form, the levels of testosterone in both boys and girls increase enormously, relatively speaking. And this makes the gland tissue in the skin dramatically increase its production of these oily chemicals. And as a result, the skin becomes a lot greasier, which can affect the proliferation of microorganisms. Certain microbes survive better under those conditions. And it also means that it's more likely that the little ducts that drain those glands can become obstructed, either by the oil itself or other things applied to the skin, such as creams, lotions, or just dirt and grime. Now, if they become obstructed because they're producing much more material, then bacteria, which can get into them, can overgrow within the blocked gland and the overgrowth of the bacteria can then trigger inflammation and when you have inflammation the immune system comes in and it begins to attack the bacteria and in the process it produces various inflammatory chemicals that open up blood vessels they wind up nerve cells and they also attract other components of the immune system which makes the area get red hot swollen and tender now as the microorganisms are attacked by the immune system the white blood cells that come in to do that can also die in the process. And this is what produces pus, or the yellow stuff that you get inside a spot. Now, normally, if just left alone, this will go away. It's a good idea not to squeeze a spot, because yes, although sometimes the stuff can come out of the right way, what can happen is that instead of splurging out the front, the pussy inflammatory debris inside the spot can sometimes go sideways into the adjacent skin tissue and it spreads the infection and it also increases the degree of inflammation and this in turn can then damage the underlying skin tissue which can produce more swelling and if it's very bad you can get scarring. Now some people are more prone to spots than others probably because certain aspects of their genetic makeup might mean that they have certain populations of bacteria on their skin that are more likely to provoke spots. It may be that also more sensitive to testosterone and androgens and this makes their glands produce more of this oily material in the first place. And both of those in combination can conspire to make some people more prone to acne and spots and, and the way in which they react to those bacteria with inflammation for example. So the long and the short of it is that unfortunately it's a consequence of growing up that as you get older, the amount of testosterone being produced in surges drops a bit and therefore the skin acclimatises and becomes less greasy. But for people for whom it's a big problem, you don't have to suffer in silence because there are some good treatments and in people who have chronic cases, antibiotics are very effective and members of the tetracycline family of antibiotics are really very good and taken for about six months, they can sometimes eliminate the bacteria that are causing the problem and prevent any more skin damage and this means the skin then has a chance to recover. If it does recur, you can simply start the antibiotics again. But obviously antibiotics are a bit dramatic, and so if possible you should try and use simple measures first, soap and water to get rid of the excess oil, and then things like benzoyl peroxide, the creams that can help to slough off the excess skin and stop the little ducts from getting blocked in the first place. But it is a big problem. It's a horrible thing to have to put up with. Luckily it does tend to improve with age. There are not many things that do. This is one of them. And now it's time to join Diana O'Carroll for a snappy question of the week.
This week, it's been more than just a while for the crocodile. My name is Mike from Battersea in London. My question is about the stability of change with crocodiles. We learn from various sources that all birds, incredible variety of birds, came from a small pool of dinosaurs. And mammals apparently all came from a shrew-like creature. I just wondered why crocodiles seem to be very stable over the same sort of period. Is there something special about their DNA or is it just the environmental factors that keep them moulded the way that they are? So why have crocs not bothered with changing for so long? My name is Michael Benton. I'm Professor of Vertebrate Paleontology at the University of Bristol. Crocodiles are, are extraordinary animals. They're not very common. There's only about 15 species of them on the Earth today, and they haven't really changed very much for the last 200 million years, or at least to our eyes they haven't. There are two reasons that people sometimes give to try and explain this phenomenon. We call them living fossils, meaning animals or plants that haven't apparently changed very much. It's not a very precise term, so we have to be very cautious about it. It may just be our perception. They look the same to us. But those explanations are either that they're hugely successful on the one hand, or on the other hand, that they're just doing something that nothing else wants to do. So a kind of strongly positive and a somewhat negative interpretation. So that the highly successful argument is that crocodiles are doing something remarkably well. They're, they're preying on animals, fish and, and land animals in fresh water generally, sometimes in salt water. They're feeding in a particularly beastly manner and nothing else can compete. And, and they do it so well that there's no reason for them to change their, their mode of behavior. The other explanation is that they're doing something so obscure that perhaps no other animal is interested or has had any evolutionary pressure that it should evolve into this particular niche and therefore nothing is really competing with crocodiles so they can just potter on doing what they've been doing for the last 200 million years uh, and nothing in evolution is driving them to change. So crocodiles may not have changed because they don't have to, there's nothing competing with them or because they're just so perfectly adapted to their own niche. Sharks have also been around for a few hundred million years, but have seen a few more changes, including size. The megalodon shark could have been 20 metres long when it was still swimming about two million years ago, as opposed to the modern great white, which is big enough at six metres in length. And on to some more animal differences for next week's question. Oh, hi, Chris. This is Max from Toronto in Canada. I have a question uh, regarding blood types. Why do we humans have different types of, uh, of blood? And uh, is it an evolutionary thing? Where does it come from and what's the purpose of it? Also, do animals have any blood types as well? Thank you. Bye-bye. Why have different blood types? Is there any advantage? Let us know your answer by emailing chris at thenakedscientists.com or by writing on the forum at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. Diana O'Carroll with this week's Question of the Week. You can find more episodes of Question of the Week on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash QOTW or as a podcast in its own right on iTunes, just to search for Naked Scientist Question of the Week. Well, that's it for this week, and thank you very much for joining in. Thank you also to Josef Barash, who joined us at the beginning of the programme, and also to our wonderful production team, including Mary Senthalingam, Ben Vausler, Diana O'Carroll, Dave Ansell and Kat Arney, who you've heard this week. We are back next time with a look at the science of synthetic biology, how we can make artificial enzymes and even artificial life. So send us your thoughts, questions or feedback. In the meantime, to chris at thenakedscientist.com and do join us next week, I hope. Until then, goodbye. 
The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.